Today's guest was a former intelligence analyst and criminal analyst where he worked on cases that successfully ended with criminal convictions and seizures of hundreds of thousands of dollars of illicit funds. He currently serves the fraud examiner community by teaching courses on bribery and corruption, conducting internal investigations, government fraud, money laundering schemes, and among other fraud-related courses. Many of you recognize our guest since he is the training director at the Association Certified Fraud Examiners, ACFE. He has worked on complex cases under the U.S. Army as an intelligence analyst and the Texas Department of Public Safety as a criminal analyst. Some of his cases include subject matter on money laundering, public corruption, embezzling, um, illegal gambling, and so much more. I would like to welcome Jason Zirkel. Hi, Jason. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You have an impressive list of experience for both financial and non-financial cases. Why don't you take a few minutes to tell our audience your story and how you started working for the U.S. Army, then off to the DPS, and then becoming the director of training at ACFE? Yeah, so, um, you know, yeah, I started out in the Army, and it was just, you know, it was a great way to, to pay for college, right? And so, uh, you know, got deployed a couple of times, got deployed to Iraq, got de deployed to Kosovo, Wow. And um, while, you know, while I was an intelligence analyst in the Army, I, I kind of, that's when I first kind of became uh, exposed to organized crime. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to just, you know, the, the bad guys that we fight in the Army, something that a lot of people don't realize that, that we have to deal with when we go into, you know, when we've been involved in, in situations in these other countries is organized crime. And so that was something that I really kind of gravitated toward because not a lot of uh, of analysts were, were focused on the organized crime aspect and how the organized crime played into um, whatever insurgency that we were dealing with. So that's kind of where I kind of first got exposed to it. And then so when I got out of the Army, a lot of my friends were becoming intelligence analysts in law enforcement. And so, you know, I'm from Texas. I, I came home to Austin and uh, some of my friends had started working for the state police, which is the Texas Department of Public Safety. And uh, so I ended up, you know, coming on board with Texas DPS as an analyst and I began working financial crime cases. And uh, most of what I did was with the Texas Rangers. Uh, most people are familiar with the Texas Rangers. If, you know, you've watched the movies, you've, you've seen Walker, Texas Ranger. <laughs> but the modern rangers they're it's 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 they're not like that they're very very um uh you know state-of-the-art professional law enforcement organization and they do uh fraud money laundering public corruption a little bit of everything yeah. so in my time with the rangers i got exposed to a wide kind of variety of fraud schemes, whether it was uh, elder fraud or, you know, some other sort of consumer fraud case or just a regular like occupational fraud, like somebody embezzling money from their own company or uh, a public corruption case. And then so I began to work all these cases with the Rangers. And then, um, you know, after about eight, eight or nine years of doing that, um, I came on board with the ACFE because I had begun to, you know, speak you know, do training presentations on a lot of my cases. And then so I've been with the ACFE now for about two years as their training director. Fantastic. And thinking back to when you first got started, 
what is one thing you wish you had known when you began your career? You know, the, the big thing is that it, in the fraud industry, I think, um, you know, I everything has pretty much been done, right? I mean, even though fraud is somewhat changing, a lot of the fundamentals are there. So if somebody had pulled me aside earlier and said, hey, you know, anytime you're working a new case, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Someone <laughs> out there has already worked that exact same type of case. So you know, networking with other investigators and researching that type of fraud is going to be just as important as actually spending time putting your case together. If I had known that like half my job was just going to be networking and building contacts at banks and financial institutions or working with other investigators that have already worked that type of fraud so that they can help me um, build better language into my subpoenas when I go subpoena bank records or something. If I had known that, it would have been a lot easier because at the beginning, I just kind of like plotted right along with the case and thought, oh, I can just, I can figure it out as I go. No, somebody's already done it. So don't reinvent the wheel. Learn how to network with other investigators and build a list of contacts to draw on because there is a wealth of knowledge out there in the fraud investigation industry. That's great. And as uh, the training director of ACSC, of course, what specific skills do you think an analyst or investigator should have to help them do their job better? You know, most I think most skills are can can be taught. Uh, I do think there is one skill that is important that. Um, that I think makes a really good investigator, and that is a natural curiosity. And so, like, for example, when I was working a case and I didn't know that much about the type of fraud, I'm just a naturally curious person. And so, um, you know, so I would want to go out there and I would want to become the subject matter expert now on that, even though when I started the case, I knew nothing about that fraud. So I would go and I would Google it and I would download white papers and figure out, you know, okay, how does this type of fraud uh, work? And so I would, you know, the natural curiosity thing, I think, is one of the main untaught skills that a really good investigator needs to have. Everything else, you know, a lot of that stuff can be taught. Um, interviewing techniques, yeah. proper evidence collection, data analytics, um, all those are important, but those are things that you you know, how to testify, all these other skills, but there is just something there that's important um, when it comes to just this natural curiosity, like when you're involved in something and you don't know it, it bugs me. And so I have to really get in there and figure it out. That's good. That's good. So curiosity and networking. Yeah. <laughs> Topics there. And for the type of cases that you've worked on, um, like embezzlement, I know you did some human trafficking, you mentioned public corruption. Uh, what are the challenges in dealing with um, like digital data when it comes to fraud investigation? The, you know, the, you know, the fact that it's, I mean, right now we're having this, this uh, discussion in 2021 and with digital data, the biggest problem is that there's just so much of it, right? I mean, the cases that I have worked um, have often involved terabytes of digital data. And we're talking about tens of thousands of pages of, of emails and financial records and data dumps from the suspect's computer. 
And that data can come in certain ways. It can be, uh, it could have been a Texas Ranger showing up in my office with a big banker's box full of, of financial records that I now have to scan. And now I'm working with this, or it could be a data dump from the suspect's computer. So finding a way to process all of that evidence is really the biggest challenge. You've got to, you know, you've got to collect the evidence using proper digital forensics. You've got to create a working copy and there's a proper way to do that. Right. You've got to process the data, you know, and uh, because it's probably not going to be in a very user friendly format when it comes <laughs> in. Yeah, yeah, there's uh, there's duplicate data. There's uh -huh. missing data. There's errors. Whenever we subpoena bank records, there's often missing months. Oh, yeah. And it might take me a while to figure out, hey, they didn't they missed like three months worth of bank statements. Right. We need to go back to the bank and say, hey, send us those because that was covered in our subpoena. Please send us yeah. those missing months. So it takes a while to figure all that out. So, you know, finding the right tools to allow you to do that uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that's really efficient, I think is very important because the quicker that you can get through all of that stuff, the quicker you can move on to kind of building up the rest of your case. Of course, yeah, we see so much. Just the financial statements and bank statements alone, the withdrawals and the wires could be so overwhelming. And Absolutely. then the telephone records, we've seen text messages, just so much data that you'd have to go through. And based on your experience, do you think there's a way to reduce the time required to conduct these fraud investigations? Absolutely. You know, when, when I was in the Army, we had this concept called uh, the force multiplier. Right. And so a force multiplier is a tool that a soldier can use to accomplish basically the, the job of seven or eight soldiers at once. And so in the Army, that was things like like GPS or like cyber warfare or some sort of advanced electronic communications methods. And so these were all things that allowed a single soldier to do the same thing that maybe 20 years ago would have taken seven, eight, nine, even up to like 15 or 20 soldiers. So I think the same idea applies in the fraud world, right? You know, in a, in a fraud investigation, the majority of your time is going to be collecting and analyzing that data. And there are tools available, you know, that can drastically cut down on the time that you spend doing that. So again, you can start to focus on the other important uh, areas of your case, like proving knowledge and intent and conducting proper interviews and preparing for litigation. Sometimes in some of my cases, I was spending so much time doing data analysis that some of those other areas were kind of lacking. So if I could find a tool, a force multiplier that helps me, you know, cut down on the man hours that I was doing that, it makes all the difference in the world. And then I can start preparing my, you know, for litigation and preparing for possible possible defenses and just making my case stronger because I can focus on all that other stuff now. That's great. Force multiplier. That's a great term. Keep that in mind. Um, yeah. I often find that everyone approaches the cases a little bit differently based on their experience and background. Um, how do you conduct a fraud investigation case? What's your way of kind of um, getting that started and doing things? So something that we discuss at the ACFE a lot is the fraud theory approach. And this is something that you can go Google and you can learn about the fraud theory approach. And basically what it says is, you know, when you're conducting a fraud investigation, you develop a hypothesis, you know, you, 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 you've got your data, right? And as you are analyzing your data, you develop a hypothesis about what's going on. And then you 
as you collect more and more data, you begin to review or amend your hypothesis. You know, you're testing your hypothesis, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the fraud, the basic fraud theory approach. But it, you know, what does that look like in real life without sounding like a high school science teacher, right? <laughs> like, oh, hypothesis. And so the way that that looks like when you're doing a fraud investigation is early on in your investigation, you are going to have a pretty good idea of what the fraudster is doing, right? About how they're conducting the fraud, maybe how they're laundering their money or hiding assets. And so you need to be able to stand back from your case and look at it objectively. And you've got to be able to simplify your case in two or three sentences. Uh, John Doe is perpetrating a Ponzi scheme. Or um, John Doe is uh, embezzling money from his company through check fraud. Or John Doe is involved in a healthcare billing fraud scheme. And you've got to be able to simplify your case like that in two or three sentences so that every time you speak to a prosecutor or speak to counsel in civil litigation or you present the case to a grand jury or a, a jury during a trial, you've got to be able to say, hey, look, this case seems kind of complex, but don't worry. At the end of the day, um, it's not that complex. John Doe was perpetrating a Ponzi scheme. That's it. That's all you've got to remember. So we're going to get into the details, but at the end of the day, you've got to be able to do that. And so when you're conducting a fraud investigation, I, I can't tell you how many times that I've seen that where that first basic step is missed. And in fact, I worked a case where it was this illegal gambling and money laundering uh, trial and I did some initial work on it. It started out where there was this guy that was, he had a horse track, right? A, a horse track. And he was, he was racing horses and he would have, have come, people come in and bet on the horses. And then he was getting a cut. And the state of Texas, since we don't have legal gambling, that's illegal gambling. And so that's a violation of law. And he was laundering his money, you know, through this construction company that he had on the side. So I did what I could early on in that case, but then I, I've got 20 other cases to move on to. So I told the investigator, hey, if you need anything else, just come back to me. Well, he comes back to me right before the trial. And, I, I, you know, at that point, I hadn't looked at the, the, the evidence in like months. So I'm like, well, let me look back at the evidence. And then I asked him, what have you guys done on the financial side of it? And he said, well, not really anything. And I said, well, shoot, this is an illegal gambling case. We probably should have focused on that. So I did what I could. I went back and I analyzed the evidence. But uh, at the end of the day, he was acquitted of the illegal gambling charge. And so when the, the prosecutor ended up talking to one of the jurors and asking them, you know, basically pulling the, you know, finding out why they had acquitted the, the defendant, the juror said, well, your whole allegation was that he was profiting from this illegal gambling enterprise, right? He was running this illegal gambling enterprise. And what did you fail to do? You failed to show him profiting from the illegal gambling enterprise. Oh, that was no. your whole allegation. So you guys should have showed us more bank records. You should have showed the money coming in from the, you know, and that's something that we didn't do. So going back to the beginning, that fraud theory approach is important because if you can simplify your case, in this case, what should have happened is we should have sat down and said, okay, our allegation is that he's running a, an illegal gambling scheme. So what do we think we're going to see in the evidence? We think we're probably going to see cash deposits. 
uh, maybe after race days, because we knew when he was, he was actually advertising when the races were, and then he's moving the money over to the construction company, right? That's what we felt like was going on. So that's what should have happened. And that's what should have driven our entire investigation. But because we didn't do that step, I think that investigation was just kind of off the rails from the very beginning. And at the end of the day, again, he was acquitted. Wow. So lesson learned, I guess. I guess keep that, um, you know, in mind, the topic in mind, keep it simple and stay focused on the subject. Definitely. And a lot of us, um, a lot of us may have just started in the fraud investigation career. Any tips on how to get used to recognizing red flags? Well, the, uh, you know, the red flags, um, you know, fraud is such a wide ranging field. I think the red flags do vary from case to case, but there is one category of red flags that are common in most frauds. And that's the behavioral red flags of the fraudster. So the red flags can vary whether it's healthcare fraud or an investment scheme or just a regular embezzlement case. But the way that the fraudster acts typically is pretty common in most frauds. And you can actually go out and Google that behavioral red flags of fraud and find some good information on that. But some of the things that we see in most fraud cases when it comes to the how the, the, the fraudster is acting the, the, and I think our evidence in our research at the ACFE, we have shown that 85% of fraudsters exhibited at least one of these red flags. But we're talking things about like living beyond their means. Mm-hmm. That's probably the most common one is the fraudsters living beyond their means. Uh, they may have financial difficulties. Um, if it's some sort of occupational fraud, they will have, an, it may be that they have an unusually close relationship with a vendor. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes they have control issues or they're unwilling to share their duties because they don't want somebody coming in and and finding out the fraud right they don't they don't want somebody else coming into their territory and discovering the uh, the steps that they've been taking to cover up the fraud uh, but other things like irritability defensiveness uh, a wheeler dealer attitude and um, oftentimes there's divorce or family problems going on so I think some of those red flags are good to understand because those are pretty much universal in most fraud cases. But all the other red flags, again, depending on what type of fraud you're investigating, just go out and research it because there's already, again, probably a ton of cases that have been worked on that particular type of fraud. Interesting. Yeah, I guess go out and network and find out. Yeah. (laughs) All right. And so I've also been hearing a lot about the Pandora Papers cases. Um, the Pandora Papers is tied to an alleged money laundering um, done by, you know, the political figures, uh, pop stars, singers, celebrities. What role do accountants and investors um, could have in limiting future occurrences? So the Pandora Papers, they're interesting. I mean, it's interesting to see these these big leaks every few years and kind of what they show. Uh-huh. I mean, the Pandora Papers, they don't really give us any, they really tell us just a lot more about all the stuff that we've already known has been going on for years. But one of the big things I think for on the accounting side is that, you know, accountants, uh, they're gatekeepers, right? They're gatekeepers between the legitimate financial system um, and the legitimate financial services industries around the world and the criminal world, right? They are, they are gatekeepers. And as an accountant, 
you really have the duty to make sure that your services and that your company is not being misused to facilitate money laundering or corruption or tax evasion. You have a duty to know your customer and know what activity they are involved in. And, you know, the court, if you look at just courts around the world, courts have upheld this, this concept of willful blindness. So willful blindness basically says you can't, you know, if you're a gatekeeper, like a, an attorney or an, uh, an accountant or something like that, and you believe that there is some sort of criminal activity going on, you have a duty to report it within your jurisdiction. You can't just cover your eyes and say, oh, I, I think the guy's committing fraud, but I don't care. I'm making, I'm making money as the accountant. You can't look the other way. So that's willful blindness. And the courts have routinely upheld that you can't do that. You will, you will be liable either civilly or criminally if you just pretend like you don't know what's going on. And just, you know, allow your services to be misused by a money launderer or a, you know, a corrupt politician or a tax evader. So that's really the big thing is just knowing that you are a gatekeeper between the legitimate financial system and the criminal world. And you have an ethical duty. And in most jurisdictions, you're going to have a legal duty to report any uh, instances of suspected criminal activity. And in the fraud investigation sphere, uh, finding, you know, hidden assets, um, especially I think in cryptocurrency, we see it, um, it is a very sought after topic. What do you think is the biggest challenge in this area? Well, it kind of goes back to the digital data, right? I mean, asset tracing, it's just, it's a very time consuming process and because the whole problem is that they're hidden, the assets are hidden, right? The bad guy has gone to great lengths to prevent you from finding those assets. So again, we come back to, to finding the right tools that help you to analyze that data. And when we're talking about asset tracing, we're usually talking about bank and credit card records. And there have been times, you know, early on when I didn't have tools to help me analyze the data that I would analyze bank accounts by by hand, you know, and I would, you know, take 5,000 pages of bank records and go import those, you know, hand jam those into a spreadsheet. And so sometimes I would miss things, right? I would often miss other accounts that I we should I should have been able to see in the data, and then we should have turned around and subpoenaed to follow the assets, to follow the money. So I think with the proper tools you know, that allow you to automate that process. It just, it helps you to catch those things uh, more quickly. And it's the same thing with, with crypto. There are tools out there that, that allow you to analyze uh, cryptocurrency because it is a growing um, method that fraudsters are using to analyze, or just sorry, to hide assets. And if you have the proper tools to analyze that, the great thing about crypto is the public ledger, right? The blockchain technology that is behind most cryptocurrencies. And so the fact that it's a public blockchain, a public ledger is great. So if you use the right tool that allows you to go um, analyze that blockchain, you can find where fraudsters are putting their uh, illicit funds. And then after that, all it takes is you going to whoever, you know, whatever service provides that wallet, you know, seizing those assets or subpoenaing, you know, sending a subpoena to that company for records 
Um, but again, we keep coming back to finding the right tools that allow you to do that, that allow you to focus on the data analytics so you can move on to the other side of your case. Because tracing assets, again, it is a, it is a very, very time-consuming process. So any force multiplier that you can use to do that is really going to help you in the long run. And what's the most interesting case so far? And what is the biggest takeaway that you can share with our listeners? I think my biggest case was when, it, when I was with the Rangers, I actually worked a, an elder fraud and murder investigation. And you know, the Texas Rangers, one of the many things that they do is they, they do violent crime. And so I've been involved in multiple murder investigations. And usually I'm, I'm involved because there were, you know, financial gain was some sort of motive behind the murder. And so in this particular murder, and it became high, very high profile in the area. And it actually, they, they took the case and it became two episodes of, of true crime shows on, on television. And so in this case, you had an elderly World War II veteran and his wife had passed away in a hospice center. And the manager of the hospice center discovered that this elderly World War II veteran had a, a multi-million dollar estate. So once she discovered that, she befriended him. She became his best friend. She started taking him to his doctor's visits. But then she took him to an attorney to get him to rewrite his will to make her the executor and the sole beneficiary. She convinced him to leave his money to this hospice center uh, where she was a manager. and. I can tell you now, she was stealing the money. The money didn't go to the hospice center. And then after that, I think he, be, you know, I, I don't think she set out to murder him from the beginning, but eventually I think he became kind of, she considered him a pain. So she and an accomplice murdered him. And after she murdered him, you know, um, and it, it was it initially declared natural causes because, hey, he's 96 years old. Right. And so she got the entirety of his estate, of his multi-million dollar estate. And then so as we begin to put our case together, we developed a pretty strong case. We finally arrest her. And then the following week, the hospice center comes forward and tells us that they're investigating her for embezzlement. And so now we think that we've discovered a motive for this whole thing. And that's that she was using, you know, basically his, she was trying to steal his estate to cover up the embezzlement from the hospice center. And uh, it was just, it was a really interesting, really fascinating case, very sad case in the end. But one of the big things that I learned on that kind of goes back to something we were talking about earlier. And that's that collaboration, right? Between different uh, agencies. Um, And so in that case, we were able to use some good tools to get ahead quickly um, in the case so that we were able to preserve evidence. So I was able to use some of the tools we had to quickly analyze the bank records so we could see, hey, here's the, the bank branch that they used. Let's go and see if they have a surveillance video. So we were able to jump on the case right away and preserve that evidence. And then a lot of that case was all about networking with the major players, right? The bank, the adult protective services investigators that were already involved and the prosecutor and law enforcement. So I think that was a big takeaway in that case was just this problem of collaboration. Mm -hmm. And so in any given case like this, like elder fraud, um, a way to to improve collaboration between the major players, law enforcement, 
adult protective services, the banks. Um, it's really important. And if I have the tools that allow me to get all that data analytic stuff out of the way quicker, then I can more quickly preserve evidence, find the evidence, put the case together and collaborate with those other investigators to, you know, put our case together. Wow. Wow. And you kind of touched on it already, but what advice would you give other professionals entering this domain? Um, I think two, uh, two big things, kind of like I mentioned earlier, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Chances are for any case that you're working, somebody, whether it's a Ponzi scheme or a corporate financial statement fraud case or healthcare billing fraud, whatever it is, somebody's already worked that kind of case. So learn how to network with other investigators and develop a good list of contacts at banks, at other uh, law enforcement uh, agencies, or with uh, you know anybody that that has a stake in knowing how to uh, investigate that type of uh, fraud, you know you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You can go somewhere and get good information. And so that's the first one. The second one is, and this is just something that I noticed from a lot of cases that I worked, is these gener these cases can generate a lot of rabbit trails. And so you know, keep referring back to that hypothesis that you develop in that fraud theory approach, you know, that two or three sentence um, simple allegation. And you might find a rabbit trail that is intriguing and you, you might be looking and analyzing the, the bank records and think, hey, he might be committing a whole other fraud scheme over here. And that might be good. You might look at that, but if it doesn't pan out after a couple of days, get back onto your main allegation. You know, it's just get back on to that main hypothesis and just stay away from the trails. And again, having the proper tools that allow you to analyze that evidence are really going to help you to stay on track and focus on your main allegation. Got it. So that's great advice for everyone. Well, thank you, Jason, so much for joining us today. You certainly gave us a lot of practical and great advice. Um, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, guys, for having me.